Hey, Jared Dubin here. This is the audio from Thursday's chat on the Halftime app with Seth Partnow from The Athletic and Statsbomb and the former director of basketball research for the Milwaukee Bucks. We talked about the comments by Patrick Beverly and Anthony Edwards about Rudy Gobert and used that as sort of a jumping off point to talk about the, the evolution of defense in the NBA. We talked about the recent piece on The Ringer by Zach Cram about the way shot distribution in the NBA has changed and how that has affected offenses around the league. Talked at the end about the Bucks, the Spurs, a little bit about the Knicks, and a few more things. So enjoy. Back next week with a couple more chats, 5 to 6 p.m. Tuesday and Thursday. I see. I see some folks have followed me over. I was just talking to uh, to Jake Fisher on on, on his half on his halftime. So I see a couple of folks have kind of popped over. So hello again, Justin. <laughs> All right, good stuff. Um, if anybody's got questions, by the way, leave them in the chat, and we will uh, take some live questions at the end as well if we got some time. I want to start with you know everybody's favorite subject in the world, which is defense. Because this is something where there were a couple of quotes last night from Timberwolves. Uh, you just got about, beat by 32. Shut up. Yeah. About mostly about Rudy Gobert, and uh, it's something that I know caught both yours and my attention. Um, so I'll start with Anthony Edwards said about Gobert. I don't think he was in people's heads. He wasn't even blocking shots. I don't think people was just going to the rim, and they were like, "Oh, they got Rudy Gobert." I'm telling them, bro, he's the same as anybody else. And he said that Gobert is not the best rim protector in the league, but instead it's Kristaps Porzingis. Uh, Anytime I go against Porzingis, I don't get no layups. I don't get why we couldn't finish on Rudy Gobert. He don't put no fear in my heart. I don't know why. And then Patrick Beverly said about Rudy Gobert, if I'm the defensive player of the year, I'm always guarding the best player no matter what. I'm not roaming. It's no discredit to Royce O'Neal or any of the other players on the team. But if I'm Defensive Player of the Year, I'm not guarding Royce O'Neal. I'm guarding Mike Conley. I'm guarding Donovan Mitchell. I'm guarding Badanovich. You got Rudy Gobert out there defending Jared Vanderbilt. And every time I hear that, he's the Defensive Player of the Year. So, whatever. Uh, <laughs> I will cede the floor to you on this as first, sir. Thoughts? All right. uh, so, um, players aren't always the best at judging who, how good other players are. I think that that is, I think... From, from any number of, of sort of commentators uh, as well as like quotes from players we we, we can see that um, I don't I don't really begrudge Anthony Edwards like you know he probably I mean I, I know that like when they played the Mavericks last year Porzingis blocked a lot of shots so probably possibly in his experience like he did struggle to score against Porzingis now he may have just thought he missed some layups around Gobert but strangely a lot of people miss layups around Gobert so Maybe there's something going on there. I mean, you know, if, if every year, like, he has one of the, the lowest percentages allowed at the rim, there might be a skill involved there. I don't know. No, actually, I do know. There is. There's a skill involved <laughs> there. Um, so, but Anthony Edwards is, like, give, you know, give him a little bit of a pass. Patrick Beverly, come on, man. 
First, like this is this, there's there's a couple different sort of fundamental misunderstandings about defense in, uh, um, contained in that in that quote. And you know, Patrick Beverly is an excellent defensive player. He's not quite an elite defensive player. He's not, and we'll get to why in a second. But like the the quote I had on Twitter is like d- defense in the NBA, especially in the in the modern sort of post tib like Tibbs Celtics and Bulls era, is not. I'm going to guard that guy. I'm going to stop that guy. So I'm going to stop those guys. So if the did you if Quinn Snyder, who's a pretty good coach, I think we can agree, thinks that the best chance that the that the Utah Jazz have to stop Minnesota from scoring is to park Rudy Gobert on a complete non-threat like Jared Vanderbilt and get in everybody else's way, and then that succeeds in being basically what happened. Maybe there's something. Maybe there's something like wise and good about how that defense was both conceived and executed. Um, and maybe we should uh, kind of respect that a little bit. Um, you know, at, you know, as, as much as we kind of, you know, in, in one of our our, our our private group chats, the uh, respect the jazz is kind of a uh, is kind of a, <laughs> a, 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 a a humorous meme. But at the same time, like you know. This, this guy doesn't is not one like the best defensive player over the last decade by by a claim by chance. Okay. Second thing is is this sort of mono mono thing that Patrick Beverly is talking about. Um, in evaluating defense, it's really hard for us to get past the sort of the action bias. We see people who visibly effort. They're sprinting all over the floor. They're slapping the floor. They're getting down in a stand. They're clutching and hacking and grabbing. Look at that guy get after him. That's Patrick Beverly. You know what Patrick also happens every year with Patrick Beverly? He gives up, like, among the, the highest number of extra kind of points to his opposition by committing non-shooting fouls while his team is in the penalty. Like, this is turning a no- He turns, like, guys with the ball 30 feet from the basket into layups more often than, than pretty much anybody in the NBA. So yeah, you can you can lock your guy down, but if you're giving up an extra layup just because you were handsy, like you know how many possessions of good defense it takes to kind of overcome that extra, you know, one point whatever points you just gave up by being by being handsy out on the perimeter. And but that's the that's kind of what comes out of the mindset of being so focused on I am stopping you. I, I would like to hear what happens to a player if he gets asked by his coach. Why didn't you make that rotation that we worked on, you know, every day in two days in training camp and have talked about every day in practice and shoot around? It's like, oh, coach, I was guarding my guy. I, I, I wonder how well that will go. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine it would go very well. There, there's so many things that are both interesting and frustrating about both of these comments. First of all, like Edwards in his second year and having the experience of not finishing as well against one guy as he has against another or thinking that one guy is affecting him more than another has like i don't know how much you can really read into that maybe he does think porzingis is more effective against him maybe that's true but like you said we have these numbers over the course of like a solid decade now where everybody not only doesn't shoot as well at the rim when gobert is right in front of it but also doesn't take as many shots at the rim when gobert is right in front of it and that goes to the same point that you said about like action bias you can see guys, you know, hounding someone on the perimeter. You can't necessarily see this guy cut his drive off at the back half of the paint and pulled the ball back out instead of trying to go all the way to the rim to take a shot. That's not something everybody necessarily sees. People observing super closely see it, and people that are, you know, coaches see it, and other players might see it, but it's not necessarily something that 
you know, the average person is is going to watch and say, like, oh, wow, what a great defensive play that was by whoever the center is, because it's not even necessarily a great play. It's just the effect of him being on the court. And it's it's somewhat tough to measure that. You could do it, like I said, with, you know, the, the shot location data and the fact that players will take fewer shots from a certain area if a certain guy is on the floor to, compared to when he's off the floor. But it's it's not necessarily as easily seen as, like you said, guys where, you know, they're getting all up in their guys' jersey on the perimeter. And a lot of times that kind of defense is, like, not productive and not just because of the fouls. Like, it leads you to, you know, missing your assignment, like you said. Like, it also, like... The one-on-one thing gets into like another one of my pet peeves, where it's like defense is all about effort. This is—I went on a rant about this. Like, I don't remember how long ago at this point. We, like, I think I feel like the two of us have combined to go on this rant about once every six months. Oh my last, god! For the last decade or so. Yeah, like defense is all about effort is probably like it's one of my biggest basketball pet peeves because it focuses again just on like you know one guy for the most part when. You know, defense, especially the way it's played now, like maybe defense was all about effort in 1992 when it really was just you guard a guy one-on-one or you bring a full-on double team and those were the only things you were allowed to do. But defense has changed so much. It's about knowing your assignments. It's about knowing how and when to close out and on who and whether you want to stunt or who you want to stunt to or how far you're supposed to help in off of your man from the corner when they're running a pick and roll and a guy's rolling down the lane. Do you want to do that at all? How to execute a trap, how to execute a switch, like where you want to force, like there are so many different things that go into these, it. These knowing are scouting stars. reports, knowing your teammates and what they want to do and what their strengths and weaknesses are. Like, keeping yourself under control, closing out so that, you know, you don't, you may not necessarily want to give 1,000% on a closeout because you want to not necessarily just give up the drive right away. Like, there's so many different things that go into it. It's not just about one player trying his hardest. It's about all five players moving in conjunction with each other to limit the good opportunities and force them into bad ones. So a couple of, first of all, like all those things you just described, those are skills. Those are like, those are, those are skills the same way as having a good, low, hard crossover is a skill. Like all of those little things, like there are people who can, you know, chop their feet well to get when they're closing out so that they can, you know, contain and not get blown by on a closeout. And that's like, that, that's not an effort thing. That's just, I mean, yeah, yes, there is effort involved, but it's a skill thing. They're, they're guys who can try all they want and they still can't, you know, stop like stop their momentum and get on balance fast enough to effectively defend that way and that's you know that's that's you know guys who who can't probably don't end up being nba wings but there's still even among nba wings there is like a difference in, in like the skill level in doing that kind of stuff um i almost i forgot my second well i mean I'm just scared. right yeah. on that like yeah. porzingis is a good example of that he's seven foot three he can't help in the lane close out and contain the drive all in a row that's why it's better that he plays center and stays near the rim, so he can use his length and his size to protect the rim. Right. No, that's right. Keep talking. I'll remember the other part. It was it was great insight. <laughs> really, I was it was awesome. It was a tremendous point. And now it's and now all I have is the the, the fading memory of, of something cool. I was you know awesome. Um, I believe you. I mean, it's also I think it's interesting that these comments came from uh, a team like the Wolves, whose oh, defense. I, I remember now. Go back okay. Go ahead. Me. No, I I think that there's there's also like. Um, you also have to ask yourself about 
um, if a t- if a guy is like, all right, a team that plays defense like Toronto, where by design they're kind of flying all or using their lap. Okay, they're doing that by design. Most teams don't really play that that style of defense, and so you have to ask yourself if you're always noticing sprinting over the the all over the court to put out fires. Why? What's happened that 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 puts you in a position? Did someone else screw up and you had to cover for them, or were you late? Like the best defense is is oftentimes. You know, the kind of the reverse of the the bias towards movement and action is that the best defense is stuff you never notice. You, the best closeout is you don't notice there's a closeout because by the time the guy has caught the ball and gotten in triple threat position, the defender is already just standing in his lap in defensive stance, like palms up, staring at. It's a great closeout because it wasn't even a closeout. So what that what happened there? Either he got there quick enough and on balance enough that there was no like excess movement, or he anticipated the play well enough that he was in the spot early, early enough to, to no longer be at a disadvantage. That's great defense. That's perfect defense. That's why defense is so hard to measure is because, you know, the, the expression is like, how do you measure th- everything that didn't happen? I didn't have to close out because I was there already. It's perfect defense. That's something that I talked to Marcus Gasol about back in the day. Um, I did a story, I can't remember how long ago, on like communication on defense. And, um, and how, first of all, I remember Tony Allen telling me that like Marcus Gasol barks out all these orders to the entire team, and Tony Allen was like, "Yeah, I don't listen. I just guard my guy." Um, so he <laughs> and Patrick Beverly would probably get along, but Mark was basically like, "You know, I know I'm not the most athletic guy or the fastest guy or the quickest guy or anything like that." And he's like, "Because of that, I need to know everything, and I need to be in the spot before I need to be there." Because that's the only way I'm going to get there in the first place. Otherwise, I'm going to lose on athleticism. And it's like, now I lost my train of thought. God damn it. <laughs> We're doing very well so far. It's been a long time. No, no, oh, so you mentioned like the, the action stuff. Um, yeah. It's a separate point, but I found it interesting that these comments were coming from the, Timber, from the Timberwolves because they're a team that is doing the scramble stuff all over the place. They're trying to like create havoc. As opposed to you see a lot of teams where their defense is about like minimizing their own risk and forcing the offense to do something inefficient, if not necessarily wrong. Like they're they're like, we're not going to try to take chances and force turnovers, but we're not going to foul and we're not going to give up shots at the rim. And it's like it leaves the offense the option of like taking shots off the dribble over the top of somebody at the basket or in the mid range or things like that. Like, like you mentioned, like the Tim style defense or like the Blazers style defense for the first part of the Terry Stotts era, just like very conservative stuff. Like the defense is basically tell the offense what to do instead of imposing your will. And I think it's, it's interesting that a team that plays the opposite way doesn't think that highly of a defender who's like the best at the other way. I mean, but you have to ask yourself why the Timberwolves play defense that way. The Timberwolves, you're starting Carl Anthony Towns, D'Angelo Russell, and Anthony Edwards as a second-year player. You're not gonna, you can't be, you can't be solid for 24 seconds. Right. So you have to, you have to kind of junk it up. And that probably, you know, frankly, like, like I think that style of defense probably leads to better outcomes, at least from Edwards at this point, and like, you know, the other two. Like, <laughs> you're just, you're just kind of holding on for dear life uh, a little bit with, with. Cat and, and 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 Russell from from a defensive standpoint. So yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it takes advantage of the overall level of athleticism on the team, I think. Like, you got to play defense the way it makes sense that's, for your that's, personnel. That's, that's the kind way of putting it. That's the, that's the, yeah. uh, that's well, the like, half, also, half full way. Even if the Jazz didn't have Gobert around whom to base their defense, they're also not going to play that way because Mike Conley's not going to play that way. Joe Ingles mm-hmm. not going to play that way. Bogdanovich's not going to play that way. Like, you got to play defense the way that works for your personnel. And, like, they have the guy who's literally the best at taking away the entirety of the paint and then a bunch of other guys who their strength is positioning and like being smart and not like you know wreaking havoc because they're super athletic like that's just not the team they are and hey it's been working for like there's a reason that the jazz have essentially been a top five defense since the second gobert stepped on the court and that hasn't stopped since yeah no it's not wrong um all right now we got to go to um a piece that I can almost guarantee that you have either spent every waking second since it came out thinking about, or you spent exactly two seconds thinking about it and and have since just been angry ever since. This is the the piece from Zach Cram at, uh, at The Ringer, which was basically about the relationship between shot quality and shot making, like effective field goal percentage. Basically, the posit is that there's no advantage to taking the best shots anymore because everybody takes the best shots. Everybody has caught up to to Houston over the last few years, and the, there's not necessarily an advantage from having optimal shot distribution. Um, I would just like to point out that I wrote about this three years ago um, uh, on both offense and defense at 538, um, and I will let you take the floor because I saw you tweet about it, and we can sort of go from there. I thought Zach's piece was 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 pretty good and smart, and um, in a way, I think I, I think that he actually um, he he the where he the endpoints from where he looked at his study, I think um, almost obscure the larger trend. Which, if you go back to basically as far back as we can go with reasonable shot look, it's it's funny because it's almost a like an inverted U shape in terms of the the, the correlation shot looking and uh, effective. Like back in the day when nobody took optimal shots there was very little relation because it was all about shot-making talent. Then for from about like 2007 to about 2015 or so, uh, there was a great deal of correlation between shot location and uh, team effective field goal percentage because there, there was the, enough of advantage that can be gained just from that that it, it on some level, overcame uh, talent differences. And uh, now that, that that relationship since around 2015 and 2016 has plummeted back down to zero because since, as you say, like pretty much everybody has has recognized, you know, you want to get open, you know, you want first of all, first and foremost, to get layups. Second of all, to get open catch and shoot threes, preferably from the corners. Um, everyone's trying to do that. Now it's we're back to okay, what what's your talent? What's your what's your player's skill level? What's your shot make? Interestingly, the relationship is is declined slightly, and I think that's as much to do with kind of the. The, the the higher variance of a high th- of a higher three point environment, but the, the relationship is still very robust on deep between shot location allowed and effective field goal pitch allowed. My thing is, it was never like not about shot me. Like it was just that there were some teams that weren't shooting the right shots or were not enough of the quote unquote right shots. And this is a point that Zach makes in the piece where I think he's cited you and, and Daryl about... Uh, um, Blackport, not Maury, by the way. Yeah, Dar- sorry, Daryl Blackport. <laughs> um, about 
basically role players are the ones not taking mid-range jumpers anymore, and the stars are are basically the only ones taking those, and that's why the percentages are going up, and there's less correlation between taking more mid-range shots and bad effective field goal percentage. Like teams were just not caring about that six, seven, eight years ago, and and beyond that. So if you did just have optimal shot distribution you could make up some of the ground. But, like, you look at the early process Sixers, they had, like, pristine shot selection, but because they didn't have any shot making, their offense still stunk. But very much like the Rockets right now, which was another point that he made where, you know, they've had the best or second best shot distribution in the league since Harden got there, but once he left their shot making has fallen off dramatically and their offense isn't good anymore. So it's, it's always been about both of those things. It's just that what you're able to make up just by taking the best shots is not as big anymore because everybody else is trying to take the best shots too. We, and then we should also be a little careful here when we're talking about the best shots. Like, like the, from public data, it's actually pretty blunt what shots teams are taking. So we're going just by like where shots are taken from. Um, especially when we're talking about, like, in, in today's day and age, when we're talking about three-pointers. Like, now that, like, everyone kind of has the green light, I think we're seeing more mediocre threes being taken before, whereas, like, earlier in the three-point revolution, like, it wasn't too hard to find more and more open, uncontested threes. And teams are, are hitting the point where they're kind of maxing out on the open ones and close to maxing out on the sort of open ones. And now kind of extra threes are now coming more than not so open ones. So there is a little bit of, of you know, again, you talk about Houston, like their their shot selection looks great until you realize how many of those threes are, you know, Jalen Green and Kevin Porter Jr. like pulling up with a dude in their face. <laughs> yeah, no, when I said uh, the best shots, I meant like, you know, yeah. optimal shot distribution, yeah. like your Mori ball rate or whatever. Um, and that was sort of the, the basis of the, the story I did a few years back, where basically Houston had been taking so many more of those shots, either um, at the rim or behind the three-point line, than other teams. And then from the start of the Kevin McHale era to the end of it, their advantage in terms of like their, their Bory ball rate compared to the rest of the league essentially got cut in half. So they brought in Mike D'Antoni, and they juiced up their rate again. They were taking, like, almost 80% of their shots from those ranges, but over the course of the time that D'Antoni was there, so it's like they raised their percentage by, like, 3.5 percentage points or something, but the rest of the league raised it by, like, 8. So even though they started taking more of those shots, the rest of the league did so even more. So their advantage was smaller, even though they started taking better shots too. So it's like... Once you get to the point where everybody has joined the arms race, then again, like the piece says, it's more about are the players who are taking those shots actually good enough to make them? And, you know, th- that brings in, you know, the Nets and I can't remember the other team he pointed to with the, yeah. the mid-range the Suns, the Bulls. The Suns. The Suns. The Suns. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, look, the Suns have one of the like Two five best mid-range shooters ever. Yeah. in Chris Paul and one of the you know 10 or so best in the league right now in Devin Booker and obviously the Nets have Kevin fucking Durant so yeah 
No, it's, uh, you know, Jimmy's and Joe's, not X's and O's. Still, is when you come right down to it, it's still the thing that, that you know, you can you can scheme to a certain degree, and if it's if if talent is close, then the scheme will win. But, like, uh, you know, top to bottom across the NBA, talent isn't, pretty, isn't that close. Like, from the, you know, going from, you know, what whoever you want to say is the most talented team in the, in the league, call it the Nets, call it whoever, from them to Houston, that's a pretty, still a pretty big gap. And so it kind of doesn't totally matter if Houston is taking quote unquote smarter shots now. Yeah, I mean you see that just in the chart he has in the story from the Rockets with and without Harden. Like they went from a, a floor of seventh ineffective field goal percentage during the Harden era to twenty fourth last year and twenty second this year. There's a, a pretty big reason for that. Pretty obvious reason for that, I should say. I also think like I want to kind of tie the two conversations together because I'm interested in. Like what the next defensive evolution is now that offenses have, for the most part, not necessarily fully optimized shot distribution, but so many teams are getting closer and closer to it. How do you start forcing the the guys you don't want taking those shots to be the ones that take those shots? Like, what are the defensive changes that teams can make to counter? what offenses have done over the years. I'm very interested to see what coaches try to do over the next few years on that front. I mean, there's a couple different things. First of all, I think switching is a big part of that. So you don't, if you, you know, if, if you don't allow like a simple ball screen to allow to give someone an advantage that then draws two to the ball, then you kick and you get shooting open three. Uh, switching can take that away a little. Like for the most part, okay, you switch. Oh, it's a mismatch. Well, you're still playing in isolation. Even if you're in isolation with a good matchup, that's still a less efficient play on average by a decent margin than an open. So that's one thing. The other thing is I think that the league, and I think um, this is probably just a natural result of now like the young younger generations in the league are, are players who've kind of fully been fully formed as basketball players in the three-point era is that, you know, you see less, like, dumb help than I think you used to. You know, there's less, uh, okay, backup point guard driving parallel to the basket with his weak hand. I have to run to the nail and help. Oh, shit, he threw the ball behind me and my guy caught a shot an oak slot, catch you three. You just don't see, you don't see that as much anymore. And so I think that's, um, there's, an, it, like, the example I like to give is, you know, the, the, uh, the place where I played in college, small school in Minnesota, like the coach is the same now as he was when I was there many years ago. And we did, like every team in the world does some basic like defensive shell drill. Like I'm sure everyone who's played basketball has done the one where, you know, you have, you know, five offensive players around the arc and they pass the ball to each other and everyone kind of, you know, rotates to the spots they should be in help and stuff like that. And then sometimes a coach will dribble the ball. And what used to happen is when the coach dribbled the ball to simulate a drive, everyone would sprint to the coach, slap the ball, run back to their guy. Well, I've been told that my old coach who ran that drill, now when they run that drill, the three players at the top of the floor sprint to the ball and slap the ball, while the two players in the corners don't sprint to the ball. They face guard their guys. They <laughs> press up on their guys because understanding that the drive and kick is, is you know, there, if you're already out in the corner already, you're not going to do much sprinting to the rim. So just guard that guy. And so that, like, that's just a subtle, like, almost a subtle change to almost the fundamentals of how of how defense is taught. And I'm not, I'm sure it's like slightly different elsewhere. But I think players that have been, you know, come up in with with that like subtle change probably have different sort of 
natural tendencies in terms of when to help and when to stay home. And those tendencies are probably more appropriate for a three-point heavy era than the old must-not-let-teammate-get-beat tendencies were. And those tendencies made sense when what's the worst thing that can happen is I give up a, I give up a 19-footer. Yeah, um, so that was all, like, interesting and a good story about your college coach, but I, I meant something different when I said oh. how, how do they force different guys to take those shots. Oh, well, sorry. <laughs> well, no, but, no, but, the, no, but that, I mean, the answer there is, is a little bit switching, but at the same time, like, the offense kind of gets to pick. Like, unless you're going to, like, run, jump, trap, like, the offense kind of gets to pick who has the ball. So right. you're, you're, That's kind of where I was going. Like, do yeah. we see more aggressive and more different kinds of stuff so they can say like kevin durant you're just not shooting by the like, way I'm, I'm hurt you that you pissed on my no, i thought it was a great story <laughs> i think it's a great story about your college coach and i'm like i think it's cool that he changed the drill after so many years but, it, but, but, he, just, but he made the he made this change like he made this change like eight years ago like this is something they've been doing for a while because like wait threes Let's let's not give up. Let's not give those up anymore because we know we want to shoot them on offense. So how do we take them away on defense? And like, <laughs> you know, that's what coaches like. You know, I think that part of like why are we defending in a way that we would want to be defended? Let's change that up. I think that's that's you know all levels of basketball. That's it's like as like everybody can since like everyone has wanted to be Steph Curry. That means more kids can shoot. So you have to play defense as if more kids can shoot. I remembered what my point was earlier that I forgot about when you were talking about um, like how do you measure what you don't see or what doesn't happen reminds me of like when they talk about offensive tackles in the NFL like the best offensive tackles are the guys that you never hear their name because their guy is just not getting to the quarterback at all so it's sort of similar um, concept and then I think like like you said with coaching like that who's the best ref in the NBA I don't know I don't know their name. Cause right, they're not, all, like, they're not all up in my screen all the time getting yelled at. Because you know who it's not, Scott Foster. You know how I know everybody knows who he is. Like, <laughs> you know, and not just because all the players hate him and every coach thinks he hates them, which honestly he probably does. They're all yelling at him all the fucking time. Like, <laughs> I would hate all of them too if I was him. Like, it's a little bit ridiculous. So, to get back to your point, if you're if you're like you know positing like more running and jumping and taking the ball out of good players' hands. That's almost self-negating because the kinds of players you you would like to sort of implement that scheme, if everyone has those players, that means that the player you're passing to out of that trap is probably a smaller player who's probably got more ball handling skills, who probably is more dangerous if he gets the ball kind of on the on a short roll out of a trap. It's like you know instead of instead of it being well, we're going to run, jump, and trap, and then what's Clint Capella going to do with the ball at the top of the key? Now it's like, we're going to run, jump, and trap. It's like, okay, that's, that's Bruce Brown now. Like, you're, like, or, you know, that's on the low end. That's Draymond Green now. It's like, oh, we're... Excuse we're, me, are you implying that Bruce Brown is the low end and Draymond Green is the high end? Because yeah. I'm not sure that's allowed. On can, we, um, can we, can we, like, don't get me started on Miami right now. Like, oh, God. That's, that's um, like, what a sham. Like, and that's... Look... Manny Diaz, I would say he deserved better, but he really didn't. He wasn't a good coach. Um, that's it. Our administration, that was a little ridiculous. Like, come on. Just, if you know you're firing the guy, just fire the guy. So stupid. Anyway, 
Um, also, you fire the AD. Like, uh, but I, I do think it's... So you can have someone ready to hire the next coach. And then you don't hire an AD. <laughs> what are we doing here? But anyway. Yeah, supposedly, we're finalizing the hire of the AD on Monday. Who knows? Um, oh, well, that's, that's but, the right order. Oh, yeah. Sure. Hiring like, the coach uh, and then before the general manager never goes Exactly. exactly. But I do think, like, yeah, it's, it's better that it's, you know, a Bruce Brown type making the play than a Clint Capella type. But I also think defenses would way rather Bruce Brown make a play than KD make a play. Like, there's a reason they still make that trap on James Harden, even though they know that Bruce Brown's going to be the guy rolling and could potentially make a floater or a pass to the corner or whatever it is. It's just they would rather force him to do that than let James Harden. I mean, that's, I mean, that, that, that's, I mean if, it, if that's really true, that, that a team would, a lot, would rather you know, like Bruce Brown or similar play four on three than KD play five on five. That may be, that may actually be accurate, but what does that say about how good Kevin Durant is? Right. We'd rather you guys play in transition on every play than, than have to worry about Kevin Durant in the half court. Like that's right. That's what I mean. Like I'm yeah. curious if more teams are going to get more aggressive about that and just say like, I mean, this I guy is not going to do anything. Play, the number of players for whom that is true, I got to say, all it's probably two. There are probably two players in the that like are really are really. It, it might be correct to defend them that they, that way, and that's Katie and Steph. Probably, but I also think that if let's say Giannis probably isn't a good example because there are different ways, just because of the lack of the threat of a jumper. But if if Dame just keeps hitting shots, um, like. Coaches aren't going to be like, okay, keep doing it, right. you know? And if the standard defenses that they're playing these days aren't working, I am curious to see if they what they turn to or if there's something that they can turn to where it's not that aggressive and you're playing four on three all the time. Like, no, that, I, mean, yeah, I mean, again, the other option is switching. Yeah, I'm, well, look, if, if I knew what the next evolution in NBA defense was, I right. wouldn't be sitting on this show right now. I would be like making millions of dollars to coach in the nba so i'm not i'm not going to come up with it live on the air but for as an example like switching was not as prevalent six years ago seven years ago as it is now the strong side overload stuff that tibbs and those guys came up with in you know the the early 2000s late 90s was not well first of all it wasn't legal before then so it w- wasn't really able to be done but I, by the know. way i feel like we're just kind of walking through chapter eight of my book right now <laughs> uh chapter eight of the mid-range theory which is entitled the mid-range theory um talks about a lot of this stuff with uh with respect to the three point thank you for letting me plug the book of course i mean I, <laughs> that's what we're here for right um no, uh, no. that's that's absolutely what we're here for i still don't like i ordered the the hard copy but i don't have it yet seriously yeah, no, I mean, I have the Kindle copy, and I'm working okay. through it on there, but I don't have the hard copy yet. Where'd you order from? Uh, Amazon. That might have been the one that got canceled, now that I think about it. Okay, well. The, when the publisher had that... Uh, no, it wasn't the publisher. It was, it was Amazon, actually. We, uh, we, well, we, we figured it out. It was Like, Jeff Bezos doesn't have enough problems out here. I mean, come on. It's, it's, um, it's all right, uh, before we go, I want to talk about, briefly at least, the books. I'm going to try to get Eric name on. We were supposed to have him last week, but Brooke got surgery. Uh, so I'm going to try to have a longer conversation with him at some point. But, I mean, they I, – I know they lost to the Heat last night, but they were – what were they, like eight wins in a row at one point before they lost to the Raptors. They came back and they beat the Heat and the Cavs. Like, 
this is why I was not worried about them at the start of the season. Like, turns out if you don't have four of your five starters for a while and then you start playing, like, you're going to be a lot better when you get your guys back. You know, I'm like, these guys look really, really good. And uh, I don't think it's going to be that much longer. I, granted, the Bulls have 97 guys out in the health and safety protocols right now, so that'll affect their performance. But I don't think it'll be much longer before Milwaukee sort of reasserts themselves at the top of the conference based on the way they've been playing over the last 10, 12 games or so. I mean, I mean, Brooklyn has, has kind of gone through some stuff too, but they're but they've managed to win games. So I mean, I think we we said at the start of the season. What are the like those two teams are going to be right there at the end of the season again? And I've seen very little to convince me otherwise. I mean, you know, it may be may be strange to say this, you know, the the, the day after Miami beats Milwaukee, but I there's a lot of there's a lot of Gabe Vincent and Max from KB Casey Paula and and whatever whatever the whatever version of Duncan Robinson this is involved for me to really trust the Heat uh, in a playoff setting, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure about you, but I don't think we're necessarily going to get 10 of 15 from three from uh, whichever Martin they have and Max Struess every night. You know, that that seems no, somewhat unlikely. And look, obviously the comeback is, well, sure, they'll have Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo. And yeah, that helps a heck of a lot. But there's also, like, those guys still have to play roles and also i don't think jimmy what that, and bam what, that you, what that gets you in the playoffs last year yeah i don't think jimmy and bam are going 10 for 15 from three either they might not take 10 threes combined in the whole series but although jimmy kind of does start taking them in the playoffs these days so who knows um no i mean i think that they're like they have top end potential but just there's there are so many things have to go right and in so many like both from an injury standpoint but also like like is tyler hero going to make every jump shot again in the playoffs he did in the bubble didn't last year. Started this year, he did. Um, when, does that continue all the all year? I don't know. He's not a guy who gets a lot of like points easily, like in terms of getting to the rim, getting fouled. So you know, if that like diminishes slightly, now that's a your that's an offensive attack that's pretty limited. And then like you know, they they can defend, but their defense is also a little bit predicated on how the game is being officiated. Is that fair? Um, like this is this is this is a team that, in a game where physicality is allowed, is going to be a total bitch to play defensive. In a game where there are touch fouls called, they're gonna, their opponent's going to shoot forty-five free throws. Yeah, like if they had been playing in that, what was the game last week? I think it was um, Minnesota Indiana, where where Towns fouled out, and I would say like four of his six fouls were like, I can't believe they're calling that in a year where they're not calling literally anything. If the Heat play in one of those games, there's going to be some problems. Similar to like the Grizzlies back in the day. They would bump every cutter as they came across the lane. They would hand check every driver as they came around a screen and just be like, you're not going to call it on every trip. And for the most part, that's true. Probably not going to call it on every trip. Some crews will, though. They'll turn the, the game into a parade to the free throw line. And those are the games where you have some trouble. I think for me, the thing with the Heat is the the depth. Like they they have to stay super super healthy to be at their top end potential. And like obviously, we've seen some two of their guys are out right now. Jimmy with a little bit of a shorter term injury than Bam, I would imagine. Maybe getting some of these guys like like Struess and Martin and Vincent the reps now will help them in the playoffs. But I think ideally, you're going to play like you know your top seven. Like if you're that team. 
Like, they're made for, like, the second round of the playoffs and beyond where you can play, like, seven guys or eight guys maybe every night. But also you have to get there. And I think but it's like, but the question the question is still who are guys like seven and eight there? Yeah, I, mean, I guess um, like guy seven and a half, I guess is Deadman. But there's still like you know there's still a couple of spots in the rotation that are mm. and like what happens in the playoffs where teams just decide now nah, we're not going to guard you, PJ Tucker. Yeah, I mean he he has shown a little bit more friskiness just in terms of like actually being willing to dribble this year, which is interesting. And he had eight assists last night. Um, granted, you're not going to get that every night, obviously, and some of that is just because somebody has to pass the ball with Jimmy and Bam out and Duncan Robinson like pulling some sort of disappearing act that I'm finding somewhat difficult to understand. Like It's a similar to uh, like Davis Bertans last year where it's just like what happened to like the player that he was? It's like. Yeah. I don't. I never thought I would see Duncan Robinson shoot this poorly over this long of a stretch. Like we're what twenty something games into the year now, he's shooting like thirty something, like low thirties percent from three. I, so I think that I think that um, this is going to be a really weird tie-in. But what the hell? I think that there's actually a, a tie-in between like Bertans and Robinson and Julius Randle. And and here's what it is. I think that these are these are guys who got to where they were because it's not just they're making like Robinson Bertans, not just they're making the open open threes. It's just that they are they are hunting hard threes. And when yep. stuff was going well, that's great. And now stuff isn't going well. It's like, well, it's still, I still got to take that shot. And it's just like maybe not right now. Like maybe get back to to and and as far as Randall goes, it's like got so he's almost like he's so reliant on being like the the ridiculously good tough shot maker he was last year that he's not that he's I don't want to say abandoned but is less concerned with not having to take tough shots than he should be, and I think that's been something that's been a big problem for the Knicks offense all year. Yeah, I mean, another problem for the Knicks offense is that they're still running the exact same offense that they were last year, and they're expecting, like, just having Fournier will make the offense better, basically. <laughs> and like, Yeah, we've got a better player than Reggie Bullock who we're going to have do the exact same things as Reggie Bullock. So how is he a better player than Reggie Bullock, exactly? Yeah, you still got to do better stuff to put your guys in a position to succeed. You can't run the same exact brush screen to get Randall a right-wing isolation 37 times a game and think your offense is going to be better just because there's one different player on the court, you know, like this is why, like for me, they need to hire Tibbs an offensive coordinator or like force him to hire an offensive coordinator in the same way that people wanted Dan Tony to hire a defensive coordinator during his days as a coach, which he did eventually. And that also, I mean, like, you know, it's also, that's that. That's a little bit harsh on on D'Antoni because those like especially the seven seconds less Suns team, a team that relied hugely on Steve Nash and Amari Stoudemire was basically an average defensive. They gave up a lot of points because they played faster than everybody else. Of but course, they were, you know for that stretch they were basically like I want to say they were fifteenth in the fifteenth or seventeenth in the league in, in defensive efficiency over kind of those prime seven seconds or less. Um, I'm pretty which, sure it was eighteenth. I remember writing about it back in the day. Uh, I think it's 17th, whatever. Um, <laughs> but uh, if it's 17th in your book, it's probably 17th. Um, but no, but um, so this is, by the way, is a, um, a roundabout way of saying why isn't Sean Murray in the Hall of Fame? But I digress. Oh, um, you don't need to sell me on that one. You know yeah. that me and me and Matt are like the two biggest guys on that hill. 
I mean, I wrote the article, Sean Marion's a Hall of Famer, the day he announced that he was retiring. Remember when he was with the Cavs? Yeah, he, he announced oh, he was yeah. retiring. And I, 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 that day I wrote an article, Sean Marion should be in the Hall of Fame. Draymond Green does not exist if, if Sean Marion hadn't come before. That is 100% true. Obviously, Draymond Green exists. Draymond Green does not exist in the... In the, uh, in the way that he does now. Yes, in the, the all-star probable Hall of Fame himself. Uh, probable? I mean, I think we can... Like, um, if he's now. not definitely in the Hall of Fame, they should just abolish the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Like, I was adamant about Chris Bosh the day he retired, too. I wrote something similar, like, Chris Bosh should be in the Hall of Fame. If if they don't put Draymond Green in the Hall of Fame, they can't call it the Hall of Fame. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's the, it's the, the room of some guys, not the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I like. I will be so angry. <laughs> like, granted, I don't think we're gonna have to worry about it. I think he's yeah. gonna get in. But uh, so we got about ten minutes left. If anybody's got any questions, by the way, uh, for me or Seth, feel free to send those in. Um, this is uh, this is this is this is this is feels very retro. This is like you know back in the day when we we did our we did our podcast that that you know seven or eight people listened to probably. Oh yeah, it was good times. Um, <laughs> We do have a couple games. So, uh, actually, I, I kind of want to talk about the Spurs. Um, they're, they're playing Denver tonight, but so that's one of the reasons I bring them up. Um, DeJounte Murray is really awesome, and Jakob Pertl is really good on defense, and I kind of don't know what's going on with almost anybody else on that team. Lonnie Walker has forgotten how to make shots or even take them sometimes. It's, he's either, like, shooting way too aggressively. The best school in the country. Okay, um, he's either shooting way too aggressively or not shooting at all. Derek White can't make a shot right now. Kelton Johnson, I feel like, is not aggressive enough either. Devin Vassell, really good on defense, can shoot it a little bit or shooting quite well this year. Like it, it just feels like a team that is. <sighs> they they don't have a like they don't have a straw to stir the drink, and like, yeah. as good as Dejounte Murray has been. He's not that dude. And yeah, so like if his... you need Dejounte to be averaging yeah. nineteen and nine, your team is not in a very they're, good place. They are, they are like, I mean, realistically, like you look at them and they are like the worst Celtics because the Celtics have the same problem. Is you know, like uh, Jalen Brown, uh, uh, Jason Tatum are like better than like the Spurs versions of those guys, but it's still just two guys who can get their own, not necessarily. A, make much easy for others and you know and it's just so the they they don't get the they don't get the benefit of having the guys around them who yeah can finish a play but can't create a play uh and that's sort of where the 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 spurs are where they they don't have they don't have the 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 drink stir they don't have the main course i'm curious to see if they're willing because they're they're eight and 15 right now they are i would imagine i don't have the standings in front of me but I can't imagine anybody other than Houston and OKC. Oh, New Orleans also, because New Orleans, whew, boy, that team is sad. Um, <laughs> hey, like, there are only two games out of the play-in, though, Jared. Yeah, um, not sure that's going to remain the case throughout the rest yeah. of the Although I'm not super confident in the Blazers or the Kings figuring things yeah, out you know. to the point that they pull you know, very far away from them, but... I'm curious. Honestly, I, I feel like we can kind of separate at this point. I feel reasonably confident separating like the, the teams that are like currently one through eight in the West from the next four teams. 
that are kind of vying for the road play-in spots. Like, I, I don't, th- I, I don't think at this point, like, barring further injuries, like Golden State, Phoenix, Utah, Memphis, the Clippers, the Lakers, Dallas, and Denver, those are going to be the top eight teams in, in the West, most likely, right? Maybe I wouldn't maybe, think so. Yeah. Maybe stuff just goes like horribly like pear shaped for Dallas and they drop for or like or like uh, Jokic like misses some time for for Denver or then they drop off. But barring that, like there's it seems to me that there's a line between those eight teams and then you know Minnesota, Sacramento, Portland, especially with the injuries Portland has had in San Antonio, are kind of vying for the thanks for playing spots. Yeah, I would say all of this is dependent on nobody going into health and safety protocols as well. Like. The Bulls have like half of their rotation out for the next few weeks, so or not few weeks, like ten days or whatever it is. So it's possible they could drop out from their spot if somebody in the top eight go uh, in the West has the same thing happen. That could happen to them too. By the way, only four teams in the West have a positive point differential. That is pretty outrageous. Um, you also look at it like Golden State's at plus twelve point nine, Utah plus ten point one, Phoenix plus six point four. The next closest team in the entire league is at plus 3.7. Like, that is wild stratification. It's been a weird year. A very, very weird year. Especially because, like, the two teams at the way bottom, Orlando and Detroit. But there's not, like, I guess it's just kind of an enormous middle with teams, like, between plus and minus three per game. But, yeah. I mean, it's funny. There's only three and a half games that separate them right now, just looking at it. But, like... Think of how different the vibes in Cleveland are from the vibes in Indiana right now. Oh, yeah. Like, Cleveland is like team vibes. We do on uh, Nerdisher, we do, uh, you know, our favorite, like each each of me, Dave, and Mo do. Th- this is our, our favorite thing this week. And it feels like one of us had said something about Cleveland in our favorite things every day, every pod for like the last month. My God, Evan Mobley. <laughs> Man. Ah. Uh... Pretty pretty good. I'm I'm gonna go out on a limb, by the way, and say Cade's gonna be just okay too. I'm gonna be oh, just yeah. fine too. Remember the freak out three games into his career when it was like oh, oh my yeah, God. basically when months. when like he he played he played NBA games that uh, what on what was really his like second and third day of of training camp because he'd missed so much time. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, oh. good times. Um, all right, I think that's all I got uh, for today, Seth. Thanks for doing this, man. By the way, you know Seth from. Uh, from the Athletic, from Stats Bomb, from the book, The Midrange Theory, which is out now. You can buy it. Uh, Amazon, Triumph Books, Barnes and Noble, your local bookstore, probably. Hopefully, uh, I'm working my way through it now. You should read it. It's a good book. Um, Seth, thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, back next week, Tuesday, Thursday, five to six p.m. Once again, enjoy.